Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, this week we have a, I think we have a pretty fun film for everybody. We're going to be talking about the 1970 Necronomicon film, The Dunwich Horror, uh, starring the late, great Dean Stockwell. Does a beholder make an appearance in this movie? I want to know from somebody who has more D&D experience than me. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, the, the depiction of the monster in this film is very interesting. For the most part, it's very minimal, but we do see a, a weird splash of some sort of a beholder-esque, um, a, you know, almost kind of Medusa-esque Gorgon head creature towards the end. Uh, but you don't really get a great look at it. Yeah, sort of a flying ball of meat with uh, with like eyeball stalks and tentacles writhing as the color saturation flashes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a thing that's featured on the poster for this film, and it's a pretty cool poster. Um, you'll see different versions of it where there's this kind of like um, bestial Dean Stockwell head with a bunch of... Um, of snakes and serpents and leeches and stuff kind of like writhing on the head. This is not exactly what you see in the film. This is just kind of poster art, I think, inspired by it. True, though I do like the diversity of the different kinds of heads on the snake things coming out of this beast. So you got like a cow skull looking thing with horns, but then mm-hmm. you got a leech mouth. And then uh, is there one thing that just kind of looks like a raccoon? <laughs> is that like a monstrous <laughs> raccoon? Oh, yeah, it does kind of look like a raccoon. Yeah, all sorts yeah. of stuff going on there. It's chaos. It's chaos in, in, in that creature. Um, but this is a film I, uh, it's been on, been on my list for a while, but I think a couple of things kind of propelled it to the forefront for us to record this month. First of all, uh, I'm growing a mustache for the Movember uh, effort. You've probably heard our, our ads about that and you know, mentioning uh, uh, you know, where you can go to learn more. Uh, so I wanted to watch some films with solid mustaches in them. And Dean Stockwell's mustache in this film was essential for me because unlike the excellent mustaches of someone like Vincent Price or Oliver Reed, this one looks like the sort of mustache that I could conceivably grow. Uh, <laughs> an uncanny mustache. A mustache that at once checks, out, checks off all the boxes for being a cool mustache, but also looks somewhat uncomfortable. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Well, th- that's the uh, that's the essence of Dean Stockwell's character in this movie. Because while, of course, this is based on a novella originally by H.P. Lovecraft, one way I think the movie is is very different than the source material is the movie has more suaveness in it. Mm-hmm. Dean Stockwell plays a guy who is ultimately a, an occult creep uh, who whose affinities lie in other dimensions, but at the same time, there, there are some scenes where he's kind of he's kind of smooth. He's he's kind of uh, got a little bit of charm. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like a love story at times. Uh, it doesn't stay that way very long, but there are a few moments in here where you're like, oh, this is kind of a, a, a you know, a, a, a slightly horror-themed love story. Now, the, the other thing that really propelled this to the forefront uh, for us is that, of course, um, on November 7th, Dean Stockwell passed away, the star of this film, or one of the stars of this film. So I thought, well, that settles it. Uh, you know, we, need, we probably need to cover this one. And it's kind of a, a tribute to Dean Stockwell, who, um, as, as we'll discuss in a bit, you know, has been in tons of stuff over the years. And uh, there are some very memorable roles uh, mixed into that filmography. Now, uh, as as you mentioned, this is a film that is based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, and uh, I think I think I long avoided watching this adaptation of the Dunwich Horror because I'd always heard that Lovecraft aficionados did not like it; uh, they didn't think it was true to his vision. <laughs> oh, but okay. I think that time <laughs> has shown us that first of all, cosmic horror doesn't always translate that well onto the screen, anyway. Mm-hmm. And also, the more we come to terms with what Lovecraft's vision really entailed. Uh, in its entirety, I think deviation from from uh, form sounds increasingly okay. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I saw that uh, Electric Wizards Just uh, Oborn loves this film, so I figured, well, something must be working in this adaptation. For people not familiar, this is sort of a house favorite, uh, a doom metal, stoner doom metal band. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they, they actually sample this movie in at least one of their songs, right? Yeah, and then there's another song that is just called um, Dunwich, which it seems entirely inspired by this movie. Uh, it has lyrics like "Child of Dunwich, rise! You have your father's eyes," and and it looks like uh, somebody affiliated with the band um, actually cut together, uh, you know, a music video for that track using footage exclusively from this movie. So there you go. I think it's fitting for the band because this movie has just their their right sort of. Uh 
balance between uh, cosmic menace and absolute cornball. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, by the way, that that track, that music video, I'll include that on the blog post for this episode at samudamusic.com. Uh, and by the way, for those of you that have written in and, and you've said, hey, where can I get a list of all the movies you've covered of all the Weird House episodes uh, that you've done? Uh, that is where you will find that. Uh, Samuda Music, S-E-M-U-T-A-M-U-S-I-C.com. So let's get into it. Uh, yeah, what do we have in this film? We have a we have a, like a 1970s hippie Necronomicon story full of weird music, Dean Stockwell, uh, and it's produced by Roger Corman. And see the Corman connection because it has a little bit of the same grit as those uh, those like Corman Edgar Allan Poe movies from around the mm. same time. Yeah, and it also, uh, as we'll point out, a number of the people involved in this went on to be in episodes of Night Gallery. I feel like this if you if you dig Night Gallery. You'll dig this film because it has that same texture, that same that same feel, that same mouth feel that you get with Night Gallery. So, how do you do an elevator pitch on on this movie? Would you say like boy meets girl, boy wants to open an interdimensional rift to summon ancient demons that ruled the cosmos before humankind? Meddling grandpas and professors interfere. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Sort of generational conflict over, over um, you know, illicit books of ancient knowledge. Uh, well, what would happen if you rolled a doobie with a page from the Necronomicon? Uh, these <laughs> yeah. are all ideas that were bouncing around my head. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably need to come back to this later on, but it's interesting the little ribbon of hippie culture and aesthetics mm-hmm. running through the middle of this movie. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not a Woodstock kind of movie, except in little like moments. And those moments are the suggestions of the, the, the otherworldly evil. It's almost like a, uh, you might say it's more anti-hippie than hippie because like the hippie imagery in it is the, the visions coming from the, uh, the unspeakable place. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to discuss those themes Uh, because it's not one of those films that I feel like purchase itself you know perfectly between cultures of this time period where it can you know fully be one thing to one side of the the culture war and then another to uh, to to the other side uh, but it does it does seem to sort of try be trying to have that ambiguity at times of course then again it might just be sort of uh I don't know, historical happenstance, the yeah. same way you might imagine. If if this movie was made in 1995, the visions from the other the other plane would involve sinister grunge people in flannel kind of flailing around in a, <laughs> in a Seattle alleyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, well, let's go ahead and have, uh, have some of the, the trailer here. The nights are darker. And night is when it happens in the Dunwich Horror. Come back, old one. Princes of darkness. And repossess the earth. The Dunwich Horror based on H.P. Lovecraft's terrifying tale of those who explore the unspeakable. Starring Sandra Dee, Dean Stockwell, Academy Award winner Ed Begley, Sam Jaffe. Never heard anything like that. All right, sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Yep. All right. Well, let's dive right into the people involved in bringing this to the screen. Uh, first of all, I should note that apparently this was originally going to be a Mario Bava film, hmm. uh, but it sounds like American International Pictures switched things up, you know, sort of for you know, it, it, the sort of business reasons you might expect with a studio. Like I think uh, one of Bava's previous films underperformed or didn't perform in the way they wanted it to. So it ended up getting shuffled around and we ended up with Daniel Holler directing it. Um, this is a guy who was born in 1926, and weirdly enough, Haller's directorial debut was a 1965 Lovecraft adaptation, Die, Monster, Die, starring Boris Karloff. Oh, yeah. Is that one based on The Color Out of Space? I believe so, yeah. I, I have not seen this one either. Uh, I haven't either, but, uh, the, you know, they just made a new Color Out of Space movie within the past year or two, and I actually never saw it yet, but it's got Nicolas Cage in it. 
Oh, well, well, you know it's good then. <laughs> uh, so uh, Haller went on to, uh, f- from uh, Die, Monster, Die, he went on to direct a, a pair of late 60s biker movies. He did Devil's <laughs> Angels starring John Cassavetes. He did The Wild Racers. This starred Fabian and also featured uh, um, uh, one of our favorites, Dick Miller, in there, of course. You know, this movie really missed out on having Dick Miller in it. Dick Miller would have been great as as one of the irate townspeople, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He has townspeople written all over him. He could have been the guy at the gas station. That's a yes. perfect Dick Miller role. Yeah, or he could have been uh, one of the guys at the store making fun of Grandpa when he was talking mm-hmm. about bringing beings over from another dimension. Yeah, yeah. Missed opportunity. Anyway, uh, Haller went on to do mostly a lot of TV work, Uh he directed the pilot for Buck Rogers in the 25th century, which ended up being uh, pushed out as a film. So technically, uh, there's a film credit for him. Uh, he was also production designer and art director on a bunch of old Roger Corman movies. All right. Now, the writers on this, um, there, there are a couple of writers that really didn't go on to do a whole lot else. Uh, Henry Rosenbaum and Ronald uh, Sokoski, But Curtis Hansen was one of the writers. He lived uh, 1945 through 2016. And uh, this was his first screenplay, but he went on to work on screenplays for White Dog, uh, Never Cry Wolf, and L.A. Confidential, which he also directed. Uh, Other directorial credits include The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Wonder Boys, and Eight Mile. Now, I guess if you're trying to adapt a a Lovecraft story for for the screen, there's always a choice you've got to make, which is sort of... I, I would say probably usually prized for its dreadful imagination, you know, very imaginative of of uh, strange and powerful imagery that, that, that makes you feel s- small and afraid. So it's good horror in that sense, but very often lacks a human or humane element. And so do you just sort of try to do that in a movie and risk making an alienating film that nobody doesn't really have characters anybody can connect to? Or do you try to adapt the story into something more human with more identifiable characters? Yeah, yeah, that is always the because yeah. So generally, these are stories that are very asexual. Uh, you know, they don't really have any any romance in them, and it's all about uh, you know dread and cyclopean architecture and so forth. Uh, so yeah, what direction do you go in it? Do you go in like a, an action direction, which a number of, of of people have have gone or tried to go? I know that's what Guillermo del Toro. I think has been wanting to do with um, at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, do you go in kind of a uh, a schlocky, uh, sexy horror direction, like uh, you know the the, the reanimator movies, uh, definitely went in that direction. Uh, or do, or do you find some other path? I would say the screenplay adaptation in this movie doesn't step fully into making it like a uh, you know like a, a rich, lovely world full of full of uh, identifiable characters that are mm-hmm. you know fully human. But it takes sort of a half step in that direction. It is less barren of humanity than than your standard Lovecraft story would be. Yeah. Now, uh, Lovecraft uh, lived 1890 through 1937. Pulp horror author and one of the major voices of the Weird Tales era, who became more influential and famous after his death. His work has left an undeniable mark on modern horror, but modern horror fans have had to contend with the racism in his letters of correspondence, as well as in the fabric of many of his tales. In the stories themselves, it's one of those things that I feel like it's, it's impossible not to see it once uh, you've seen it, you know? And, and even in the Dunwich Horror, uh, which I, I did not reread for for the purposes of viewing this film, but but even in watching this film, there are elements that are about like people being despised because of their lineage, um, mm. and it's it's just impossible to ignore. Like that's it's just baked into so many of his works. Totally, and I think that's one of the reasons uh, I, I would agree with what you said earlier. Like I, I'm not really troubled by Lovecraft adaptations not being true to his mm-hmm. vision. I mean, I think you can probably take a lot of what's like cool about the uh, the monstrous and imaginative qualities of some of his stories and do something else with them, maybe even something better with them. Yeah, and in this case, something groovier. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about the groovy humans involved uh, in acting in this film. Uh, the the top build star is Sandra D, who plays Nancy uh, uh, Wagner, who lived she lived 1942 through 2005, a former child model and teen actor. D was a big deal in the late 50s through the late 60s, known for the title role in 1962's Gidget, among others. Uh, and this film, The Dunwich Horror, was supposed to be part of a comeback for her, but it apparently didn't quite take off, and her work after this film was increasingly sporadic. 
but she did go on to appear on three episodes of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, uh, which, again, feels appropriate considering the, uh, uh, you know, the tone of this film and the tone of Night Gallery. You know what? I, I thought Sandra D did really good in this movie. I thought her part was a little bit underwritten later mm-hmm. in the film, but uh, but she does a good job with it. Yeah, I mean, she's very charismatic on the screen. You you instantly buy into her uh, into her character just based largely on on Dee's performance. Uh, but yeah, her her character increasingly feels less dynamic and 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 more powerless and uh, kind of like shuffled to the background of things. So, uh, but that being said, she does a good job with it. I was going to say, actually, it very much reminds me of the arc of the protagonist in uh, in Lords of Salem, who my main problem with that movie is the, that the protagonist for the second two-thirds of the movie becomes mostly catatonic. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was a, very much a comparison to be made between the, the, the character trajectories of both of these, uh, the, these roles in both of these films. All right. Well, let's let's talk about Dean Stockwell then. Dean Stockwell plays Wilbur uh, Waitley here. Uh, so Dean Stockwell lived 1936 through 2021. And uh, boy, he had a really long career. He started out as a child actor in 1945 and continued acting for the, uh, the next 70 years. His last screen credit was in 2015. So some 204 screen credits. Wow. So as you might imagine, there's a wait, wide... Wait, wait, wait. Hold okay. on, hold on. Sorry, I have to ask. Is that counting each individual episode of Quantum Leap separately or or just as one credit? Just as one credit, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because, yeah, Quantum Leap, of course, because he did a fair amount of TV work. And so I think a lot of people, when you think of Dean Stockwell, you probably think of his character Al, the hologram, on Quantum Leap, uh, the guy who appears to you and helps, helps you figure out what you've got to do in this uh, weird sci-fi reincarnation um, serial um, situation in order to keep passing on through other people's lives. I was a big fan of Quantum Leap. I remember we would, uh, it was like a show that the that my family would watch. We would watch it together whenever it was on. So, uh, oh, so fond memories of that. I think that was another one that I sometimes saw at uh, Hotel Cable, like on vacation. Because <laughs> they, re- they did reruns of it on the Sci-Fi Channel, right? Oh, did they? Okay. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So Stockwell did a lot of westerns early on. Uh, again, a lot of TV work. Uh, he did the hippie picture Psych Out in 1968, opposite Jack Nicholson. He was also in Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie in 1971. So to a certain extent, he seems to have been very much a part of that Nicholson, Hopper, Dern, Fonda scene of the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the mid-80s, he had this sudden film um, resurgence, appearing in Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas in 1984, as well as David Lynch's Dune in 1984, in which he played Dr. Yu. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was in Dune. Yeah, yeah, he's got the mustache, he's got the mark on the forehead, um, yeah. In 1985, he was in William Fredkin's uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, Subsequent films include Blue Velvet, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, He also had a memorable role in the 1988 Jonathan Demme comedy Married to the Mob, in which he played a mobster. I think it was something like Tony the Tiger or something was his name. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, on TV, though, I think he's best remembered for Al on Quantum Leap. Uh, he also later had a, a fun recurring role on the Battlestar Galactica reboot as uh, John Cavill, and he did an episode of Night Gallery. So a weird fact I came across while while reading about this movie, Dean Stockwell was in a second movie adaptation of the Dunwich Horror, of the, the novella this movie's based on. It's one from 2008 that looks truly dreadful, uh, but... In this one, he's like he switches roles. So in this movie, he plays the guy who's trying to summon the demons, and in the 2008 movie, he plays the professor who has to battle that guy in the end. So it's basically a switch from like playing Macbeth to playing Macduff. Um, <laughs> and this adaptation is set in Louisiana, which what? <laughs> Can you really separate the stony New Englandness uh, f- from this story? That seems absolutely crucial to it. That seems like trying to set The Shining in Louisiana. Well, you, you say that, but then again, this film um, was, was uh, the Dunwich Horror from 1970 was filmed in uh, like coastal Northern California. So, oh, that makes sense. Given and the, it, yeah. and it, it it works, but then again, it, it works for this film. But yeah, it, it doesn't feel particularly uh, like New England. 
Uh, now, I will also mention that Dean was the son of actor Harry Stockwell, who, among other things, was the voice of the prince in Disney's Snow White, the classic Snow White animated uh, film. Hmm. And Dean's older brother, Guy, was also an actor, appearing in such films as uh, Santa Sangria and also 1965's The Warlord. Uh, he played the villain in that opposite Charlton Heston. Mm. Now, you mentioned the professor that, uh, that, that battles uh, Wilbur. Uh, this is Professor Armitage, uh, doctor, uh, or Dr. Henry Armitage, as, uh, as, as he's referenced in the credits for, uh, for Dunwich Horror. And in this film, this character is played by Ed Bagley Sr., who lived 1901 through 1970. So he's the hero of the picture, philosophy professor at, I believe, uh, from um, uh, uh, Mizzicatonic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, it's, if this is like the, the California branch of the, the college or if he's <laughs> visiting. Uh, it's not really explored. Yeah. Uh, Miskatonic University, Riverside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Ed Bagley Sr., as you may notice, this is, of course, Ed Bagley Jr.'s dad. Um, he was nearly uh, 70 years old during this film, and it, it definitely shows. He has very much the, the feel of, a, of an older guy in this, uh, which... Um, I, I think is rather rather fitting because we talked about sort of the the themes of generational um, tug of war in this picture. You know that it's about uh, uh, the, the old people telling the young people they shouldn't do things, and and ultimately it it feels like it has this. Um, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that that Armitage would be this grandfatherly character who's trying to protect young Sandra D from the dangers posed by hippie sorcerers. Oh, yeah, I can see that. And, well, even though Ed Begley is supposed to be on the side of good at the end of this, uh, at the end of this movie, he, he plays so well into the cranky old man archetype. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and I think he was often typecast that way. I'm not, I haven't seen all of his movies, but like, for example, in 12 Angry Men, he, he plays like the worst juror. You know, he's the, <laughs> he's like the racist one. He's the, he's uh-huh. the like nasty old guy, uh, who they eventually win over in the end, but like it, it becomes clear that he, he's just like a mean old crank and he, he can play a mean old crank. Hmm. He, um, yeah, I don't know that I've really seen him in much, um, or at least don't remember him for much, but he was a major actor. He, he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in 1962's Sweet Bird of Youth. Um, you already mentioned uh, 57's 12 Angry Men. He was also the, in the unsinkable Molly Brown in 1964, and he was nominated for an Emmy Award for Inherit the Wind. Oh, who did he play in Inherit the Wind? Was he, uh, was he Darrow or, um, or what's he his name? He played a caveman, I think. Uh, it's been a while since I've oh. seen Inherit the Wind. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I, I just looked it up. He it, it was in not the original movie adaptation with Spencer Tracy, but another one they did for TV. And uh, Ed Begley plays uh, plays uh, Matthew Brady, who is the the character based on William Jennings Bryan. Okay, so he's the do not teach evolution guy. Okay, well that 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 falls in line with with your your basic argument here, though that he tended to play the uh, the cranky antagonist. But yeah, so something about it does work in this movie, like you're saying, uh, because I think because the uh, like the evil visions are inflected with this kind of like youth and, and counterculture hippie strangeness that in the end, the day is saved by just like a like a grumpy old crank. Yeah, an old guy who's like, you get your hands off the Necronomicon. That's that's not for <laughs> young folks. That's for us olds. Right. <laughs> that's not for the common folk. That's for the professors like me. That's why we hide the Necronomicon behind a paywall. <laughs> I get to study it. You don't. But th- this is literally a conflict in the movie. Like early on, uh, Dean Stockwell and Ed Begley have an argument about whether whether he can like look at the Necronomicon, and Ed Begley's mm-hmm. just like, "No, it's not for <laughs> it's not for you to do. It's for me. It's for my studies." Like, yeah, he's not of the mind like no one should look at the Necronomicon. You know, no one, not one of those. Uh, he's like, "Oh, I should totally look at it. It's this right. is my thing." Well, we can discuss this when we get more into the plot. But I think. Mm-hmm. The idea is Ed Begley believes Dean Stockwell's interests in it are not pure, which he he's correct in, actually. True, true. <laughs> okay, so uh, Wilbur uh, Waitley's father is Old Waitley, and he's played by Sam Jaffe, who lived 1891 through uh, 1984. Character actor known for roles in The Asphalt Jungle, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, and Ben-Hur. Uh, and you better know he appeared in an episode of The Night Gallery. Now, you know, one of the actors I was most surprised to see in this movie was that Talia Shire shows up in a, in a very small role. Uh, she plays a receptionist in a doctor's office who sort mm-hmm. of uh, 
uh, passes along some uh, general folk uh, town knowledge about the evil of the Waitley family and and how uh, you know you better stay away from them. But I, I guess this makes sense because I was like, man, this is a, a strange role. But this was before The Godfather or Rocky, right? Yeah, this was only her second film credit. Uh, but yeah, she would go on to to, to play Adrian. She's a, she's Adrian. She's Adrian. the one that Rocky is wearing, yelling about. Yeah. yeah, she's Connie in The Godfather. She was in a ton of other movies, including uh, the 1979 mutant bear film Prophecy, which of course also stars our our favorite work beast uh, Robert Foxworth. Verk based. <laughs> Maybe we should start making a list of the movies that most often get mentioned with crossover. I feel like prophecy somehow comes up a lot. Yeah, like we, I, I guess we got to do prophecy at some point, uh, just because it keeps coming up. It's this uh, this this collection picture that it just collects all these other actors that we keep uh, referring to. And I guess it's one that I, I I've never seen myself, but the the VHS cover is like firmly fixed in my head because it has this like mutant bear and sort of this embryonic state. All right, well, let's talk about the music in this film, because this, this, this I was really excited for, because the music, once more, is by Les Baxter, who lived 1922 through 1966. Uh, we've discussed him a few different times. This is the king of exotica music. Um, he did the effective jazzy score in Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. He also did the very minimal electric uh, blooping frog noise score for the film Frogs. <laughs> okay. I, what, I, what always happens is Baxter comes up and I mentioned, well, okay, Baxter's got all this excellent Exotica work that he did. Uh, and then I'll say something to the effect of, well, but this isn't really an Exotica score or anything. Because because Baxter did a number of B-movie scores uh, and then went on to compose music for SeaWorld when score work kind of dried up for him. Uh, so I, I think his work is probably better understood as, as a professional output rather than anything like, hey, let's get that Exotica guy to do this uh, film because we want an Exotica score. But with Dunwich Horror, I think the elements of, of weird pagan ceremonies – uh, and it really provided a reason for some of those exotica elements to flare up. So we have this this fun mix of 1970s cinematic jazz. We have Eastern motifs. We have weird theremin and electronic sound effects. We have foreboding drums and blaring horns. Um, it it very much feels like yeah, jazz cigarette rolled with a page from the Necronomicon here. You know, I thought one of the sonic elements of this movie that was especially effective, and I don't know if Les Baxter did this part, I would assume he at least partially did, was that um, when you are seeing the evil twin brother from the house, the I mm -hmm. guess, would this be the, the titular Dunwich Horror, or does the horror refer to like this guy or like the whole sort of situation? I'm not sure. Um, I always took it to mean like the whole situation, uh, but... But I think it could apply specifically to the the brother. Yeah. So the twin brother, uh, there is this monstrous twin brother who is sort of the Hugo, if you will, the Hugo <laughs> of the film, who's behind a rattling door for most of the movie. But later on in the film, he gets out, and that's when when things really get wild. Um, and, but so when he gets out, we sort of see uh, a Hugo cam, and so we're seeing from his perspective as he uh, floats around over the landscape, looking for for people to terrorize. And in those sequences, or when, when you're seeing people and you just know that uh, the, the twin brother is near, there's just this steady, ominous chord and a slow kind of heartbeat rhythm. Uh, I, I know that sounds very standard for, uh, for horror movies, but it, it works really well in this one. I, I always really liked the sound in those scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think a huge part of it is, first of all, they're adapting a story about essentially a, 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 an evil brother who's an invisible space blob. Yeah. So if you're going to try and portray that accurately, you're, you're already limited. So they, the, a lot of what they do is based in sound and then also in like weird colors and stuff. Uh, so the sound is, is essential here. And I um, I don't know for certain, but I suspect this was totally Baxter's deal as well, if, if for no other reason, because it lines up with his work in Frogs, which is almost entirely, uh, you know, electronic and like minimal ambient in that regard. Now, I don't think the score for this film is widely available in digital or physical form right now, but it has been released over the years. And it was originally released on vinyl in 1970 under the title, and I kid you not, Music of the Devil God Cult. 
strange sounds from Dunwich. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then it, it it's just, it's a wonderful title. Like, uh, they seem to be going, like, further away. Like, it's not just, hey, here's the score for the Dunwich Horror by Les Baxter. Like, like no, here is the music of the devil god cult. And the, the, the cover of the album is just Dean Stockwell's face with his eyes so wide, it looks like his head's going to explode. Yeah, this is one of it, he, this wonderful pose that he does, where he puts his his hands to either side of his face while they're crossed uh, during one of his many Yog Sogoth uh, chants. Oh yeah, I, I I like that. So he puts yeah he puts his hands up beside his head, and he's got a ring on each pinky. So it's mm-hmm. like he's got a second pair of eyes almost. But also th- the way his hands are out flat beside his face, he looks like a cobra flaring its its hood. Yeah, it's 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 excellent. Um, it's it's a great pose. Maybe uh, may, maybe my wife will let me uh, use this pose in, in my next photo. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good for the Christmas card. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I would say that in general, this movie is excellent from an audio standpoint. I, I watched it with with earbuds in, and I felt like the weird sounds were just kind of like rolling around me in like three D audio. It has this these great dark ambient stretches. It has some wonderful like. Like um, you know, cosmic horror jazz going on, uh, which which I, I absolutely loved. So this is um, yeah, th- this is this is a wonderful score, and I, I really hope someone puts it out again, not only digitally, but like all these like crazy vinyls that we often touch on that come out to re-release these various scores. Like, oh man, you could go in so many fun directions with this. Yeah, I agree. I I really enjoyed the music, the whole the whole audio landscape. I thought was a was a highlight of the movie. All right, well, let's let's get into the plot for this baby. All right, so this movie begins with a pre-credit sequence, but it has some amazing animations that go along with the credits. We should talk about those in a second. But before we get to that, there is this pre-credit sequence where um, there there's like a bunch of witches in a bedroom. It's kind of the it's kind of Rosemary's Baby ending scene almost. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some witches in a bedroom and like a, a lady. Uh, maybe going to give birth or having given birth. And uh, the problem with this scene is all of the characters are being drastically upstaged by the decor in the room, yes. which is just the, the the busiest purple wallpaper I've ever seen. And like weird uh, clocks that look like they're made out of the, like they're like, you know, trash sculpture, um, strange framed photos weird like popping sconces and and sculptures everywhere this house is awesome but the the interior decoration is so busy it's almost funny yeah yeah it is uh it is an intensely decorated uh, house that they use for this film um and, and the, like the color scheme is wonderful it's got like these weird purples going on i love it now, I guess we're just supposed to assume that something ominous has happened in the scene. Um, but uh, but after the scene, we, we go to the credits, and the credits are wonderful. They are these blue and black silhouette animations uh, where we're, like, we're watching all these scenes. Uh, for example, there are, like, these little figures that look like wizards of some kind running around on a blue background over this solid black terrain. And then we kind of get a zoom out, and it turns out that the terrain is not ground, but it's like muscles on a giant horned devil body, mm-hmm. which was great. But then they're also, I don't know, there's just great imagery in it. It's like uh, these weird trees and a big snake head. And then uh, a guy who I, I got to say in his, uh, in his pose with his big cloak and staff looks way too much like the master from Manos, the hands of fate, but, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Um, I agree though. The, the opening credits for this are really fabulous. Um, uh, they also kind of tell a story, like they kind of fill you in and get you prepared for what's happening. It's about some sort of, a, uh, you know, presented story about a, a miraculous birth and, uh, you know, the coming of a sorcerer and so forth. Uh, it's it's nice. But OK, we cut from here to a modern university. Uh, it's like a university campus. Again, I guess this is supposed to be the uh, the, the infamous Miskatonic University. And we see uh, Ed Begley. As this character, Professor Henry Armitage, he's uh, walking with some students, having just given a lecture on this book. The book is The Necronomicon. It is this 
tome of ancient evil uh, that is stored in a glass case in the Miskatonic Library. Yeah, in and plain sight hand- of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, well, I don't know if you understood it the same way. My read on this was that um, the Armitage character doesn't necessarily believe that the like spells in the book would actually work or I was a little unclear on that, but he seems to have some kind of uh, cautious respect for this book and, and its power, even if he doesn't fully buy into magic or any such nonsense. Yeah. his. I mean, again, thinking of putting kind of like a generational conflict read on all of this, it's kind of like he's evaluating the hippie culture and he's like, I don't actually believe in you know Eastern religion, I don't believe that um, the, you know the, the, in all these beneficial um, you know powers that the, the young people say that these uh, you know that these various drugs have. I don't believe in their music, but I believe that all of these things are dangerous and can hurt them, and therefore I need to protect them from those influences. Oh yeah, I could see that. Well, so anyway, um, Sandra D, who plays a character named Nancy, and her friend. Um, Elizabeth, is that her friend's name? I think, I think so. so. They're apparently students who have been attending these lectures, so, so I guess they're interested in ancient evil tomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and Ed Begley hands off the uh, Necronomicon to Sandra D. He's like, take this back to the library. And she's yeah. like, okay. Uh, but while she's taking it back, Dean Stockwell shows up. <laughs> and he is, from the very first moment, this this powerful combination of suave and unsettling you know, is he a, is he a smooth operator or is he a dangerous creep? Seems like he's both. Yeah, yeah, he really walks that line. Uh, it's it's a great performance. There's a lot of a lot of him staring intently uh, at characters and talking very calmly um, uh, about uh, you know either about some sort of esoteric uh, topic or in this case he's just like, oh yes, I understand. But can I see the Necronomicon? Like he's very <laughs> insistent. <laughs> Yeah, he really wants to borrow the Necronomicon for five minutes. Yeah, and and she's like, she's finally like, oh yeah, okay, you can just don't take it into the bathroom. Oh, and also Sandra D immediately has a crush on Dean Stockwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and she and her friend are like, wow, did you see his eyes? He's got great eyes. Yeah, he's got his father's eyes. <laughs> so Dean Stockwell takes this book, and I think he goes to a side room or something, and he's reading aloud from it, and he's he's just enraptured. He's reading mm-hmm. these lines about Yog Sothoth. And various prophecies about gates and old ones and so forth. But then Ed Begley shows up and he's like, the book, please. Ed Begley <laughs> does not like this uh, screwing around. This this book needs to go immediately back to its uh, display case. Uh, so this whole group ends up like going out to a bar and grill together to yeah. <laughs> get some fried mozzarella sticks and, and talk about ancient evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the, 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 there's the conflict is not such that it prevents everyone from going out to lunch, <laughs> which uh, I, I wish more conflicts in, uh, in films would go like this, where there's an, you know, an initial argument and they're like, well, Hey, let's do lunch. Let's talk about this further. Shall we discuss Yog Sothoth over a shrimp cocktail? Yes. <laughs> Uh, so while they're all out, you know, talking to each other, I think we find out something about Dean Stockwell's character's background. He is a, he's a guy named Wilbur Waitley, and he's from this famous Waitley family. Uh, that mm-hmm. that their family history is tied up in the Necronomicon, this evil book. And so uh, Wilbur Waitley is the great, uh, either the grandson or great grandson. I think great grandson of a guy named Oliver Waitley who was uh, was murdered by the townsfolk of of Dunwich. Uh, I think Dun is Dunwich supposed to be in Massachusetts or um, I guess. something like that. Yeah, or in this case, perhaps uh, so, uh, Northern California. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, but it, his his great grandfather was murdered by the townsfolk after having you know it, it was mob violence for allegedly having done something very evil. And uh, and Dean Stockwell wants to borrow the Necronomicon so he can study it because he says he's a student of the occult and he says that this book is like the Bible to him. And uh, Armitage is not amused by this. He's like, I I know enough about strange things not to laugh at them. And so he won't let the book go. And uh, and so he heads off. And then Wilbur and uh, and Nancy are just hanging out. uh, Dean Stockwell and Sandra D. And uh, and Wilbur's like, I can't stand pomposity, which is funny because his character is extremely pompous. Like there are these <laughs> moments where he is just uh, m- making these grandiose prophecies. I don't remember exactly how he phrases them, but I, I would say that that 
Wilbur gets pompous. Yes. But his is the pomposity of youth. Right, yeah, which is apparently more acceptable. So it, it ends up where uh, Sandra D drives Dean Stockwell back to Dunwich because he misses his bus. And uh, we get a taste of the townsfolk's feelings about him and his family when they stop for gas in Dunwich. And the gas station attendant, once he sees Dean Stockwell in the car, he's like, oh, Wilbur, ah, I don't want anything. To do. He, he says he just wants one dollar for the gas. And then he, like, leaves them alone. And uh, apparently the animosity goes both ways. Wilbur does not like the townsfolk. He says, they've treated me that way since childhood. They're still the same frightened, superstitious fools. And true enough, everything we see of the townspeople um, from here on out, like they do seem, um, they, they do seem awful. So I'm, 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 when I was watching this, I was kind of at times wondering whose side we're supposed to be on. Uh, so, uh-huh. you know, it becomes clear that, you know, Wilbur does not have great intentions for humanity uh, through his dealings here with the Necronomicon and its, uh, its forbidden wisdom. But on the other hand, the townspeople suck. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who we're supposed to be rooting for here. I guess Sandra D. I think I think ultimately the audience is supposed to be on the side of Sandra D and her friend and Professor Armitage. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, Sandra D comes over to Wilbur's house for a cup of tea or something. I think a cup of tea. And inside, it's immediately clear that this is the house that the pre-credit sequence took place in. Because, again, the busiest decor of any house ever. And I, I don't recall if it's like this in the novella. My impression of the house in the novella was that it was more of just a, a wreck. Yeah. This house looks like it was decorated by a family of uh, flamboyant stage magicians. Yes, yeah. They have, uh, for instance, they have these wonderful crystals setting around um, that are never fully explained and, uh, and and are pretty fabulous. They they occasionally are moved around or move on their own or suddenly set off um, intense fires. It's uh, It's great. Yeah, the the house is just wonderful. It's it, one of my favorite things about the movie, honestly, is the wallpaper, the, the the little ornaments on the coffee tables and the and the hearth and everything, all the wall art. It's just it, oh, and the floor decorations. Mm. Wow, when you get those sudden like shots from up above, it's just a great, great house. Yeah, yeah, just a, a complete environment that they put together here. Now, at first, even though Wilbur has already said some strange things, we get the impression that uh, Sandra D. I think, likes him. He He's very uh, handsome and charming and uh, I don't know about charm. Yeah, sort of charming. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. at least like smooth and, and confident and there's something about him. Uh, but we, we start immediately seeing this is not going to go well because Wilbur is not a cool guy. Wilbur Wilbur is the interdimensional creep that, uh, that you, you got that hint of earlier. So he immediately uh, sneaks out to Sandra D's car and steals something from her engine, disabling the car. Mm-hmm. And then back inside the house, Sandra D starts having visions of threatening hippies in elaborate uh, face paint and clothing. And she sees tree limbs and waves crashing on rocks. Yeah, and this is where we get that real sense of hippie danger. Uh, and I love it. Uh, hippies and their magic pose a threat to the innocent youth. And it's up to the the olds to protect her from their influence. Okay, so we already saw Wilbur steal something from her car engine, uh, which is bad enough. And then it's, it's, he, he gets even worse. We see him inside the house putting some kind of potion or substance into her tea, presumably mm-hmm. uh, to, to knock her out and, and keep her at the house, to keep her from returning back to wherever Miskatonic is. But while, while Wilbur's... Uh, be, being a creep over here, Sandra D somehow stumbles into Wilbur's grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yep, who's just kind of uh, just uh, lurching around the house with his weird, funky uh, staff. <laughs> oh yeah, that staff—it's great. Mm-hmm. It's just got a big occult pendant on the top. Yeah, yeah. And a bit later, of course, we see that he—it's not just around the house. He like takes this with him when he goes to like the gas station in town. Um, uh, which you can just imagine, like, uh, like Wilbur's like, Dad, please, please don't bring that to town again. Stop bringing that to the gas station with you. Okay, well, Sandra D finds out her car won't start, and she's getting very sleepy, presumably for the sleeping powder or, or whatever it was that, that he put in the tea. So she decides she's going to have to stay the night at the house. And uh, so Wilbur uh, uh, gives her a, a guest bedroom, and, and she settles down, and then she has a dream 
And this dream really reinforces those vision themes from earlier because it's these like eldritch half naked hippies running around grabbing at her face and then waves crashing on the rocks and these visions of just uh, psychedelic evil Woodstock. And then she gets chased into a shack. And then I think that's the end of the dream. These are great sequences because we really don't see too much of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And what, but what we do see of them is uh, evocative and colorful and, and a little bit scary. Um, I, it reminded, it made me think back to the 1967 uh, film, The Trip, which was a Roger Corman directed, Jack Nicholson written film about, uh, basically about char- a character uh, played by Peter Fonda going on an acid trip. And um, in that film, there are a number of different uh, psychedelic sequences but also sequences that go on way too long and cease to feel very trippy because you've been in them for like five minutes and had sort of like stationary uh, effects and so forth. But these these feel very trippy because they are given in like dreamlike flashes. Okay, so then the next day comes along and uh, we get two different threads. One is that we see uh, Professor Armitage, Ed Begley, and uh, and Sandra Dee's friend, Elizabeth, are driving out to Dunwich to find her because she mm-hmm. disappeared the night before. And he uh, the Waitleys don't have a phone at their house, so she couldn't call anybody. Uh, so they're like, well, what happened to her? So they're, they're driving out to check on her. Yep. But then the other half is we see Sandra Dee and Dean Stockwell just hanging out, walking around town, uh, getting to know one another and, and, and sharing information. So uh, among the conversations they have, one is where Wilbur and Nancy are like exploring downtown Dunwich, and he explains how the townsfolk murdered his great-grandfather, and he says the reason for this is that he didn't believe in God or the devil, and instead believed in an ancient race of beings from another dimension that came before humanity, are more powerful than us, and uh, and that he could bring them back from the plane where they sit waiting. And then he claims that they uh, that they put a trumped up murder charge on his great grandfather. That a girl disappeared, and they claimed that he had murdered her in some kind of human sacrifice. Though I I, I think we were maybe supposed to understand that 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 charge may in fact be true. Yeah. Meanwhile, Armitage and Elizabeth end up uh, they end up connecting with the local town doctor. Uh, who might know something about the Waitley family. And this is where we meet Talia Shire. She's the receptionist of the doctor's office. And she, when speaking to Elizabeth, kind of discloses the town's beliefs about the Waitleys. Like she tells Nancy's friend uh, that that Wilbur uh, never had a girlfriend before and no girl should go over to that house because that house is bad news. And this is a nice little scene, I thought. I mean, it's nothing groundbreaking or anything, but uh, I feel like they had a nice little scene together with some some well-written dialogue. Yes, and it's a funny counterpoint to what's going on in the room <laughs> next door where Ed Begley is talking to the doctor and he's explaining, well, you know, there are these old ones and so <laughs> it's at least alleged that they can be brought back from another dimension and then the earth will be destroyed. I also love how it's basically Armitage showing up and he's being like, uh, uh, hello, doctor. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd like to, I was wondering if I could sit down with you for a moment and you could uh, tell me the medical histories of uh, this entire family. And uh-huh. he's like, well, it better be good for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's because of these ancient gods from another dimension. Yes. <laughs> and then the doctor is like, well, in that case, yes, uh, let me get out the file. Um, <laughs> now, somewhere in here, I don't remember how we get into this, but there's like a flashback of a of a, a scene, or maybe it's not a flashback. Maybe it's either a flashback or it takes place at the same time, but for some, uh, at some point, it's Grandpa a sepia Waitley. tone, so it must be in the past, right? Oh, okay, okay, you're right. Grandpa Waitley is in a local general store, Mm-hmm. And he's just ranting about old gods, I think. And uh, and the locals are, are viciously mocking him. Yeah, yeah. You, this is one of those where you're like, oh, man, the the people have done which, like, they, they mostly suck. So I, I really can't side with them in all of this. Feel bad for old Whaley here. But somehow in all this, the doctor and Armitage, uh, they figure out that uh, Wilbur's mother, Lavinia, is currently in an asylum and they go to to see her there, and she's in a padded room, and her hair is turned completely white, and she's in there screaming about how, my sons, open the gate, my sons, and then she says, kill them all. And so I think it's one of those cases where a character who is uh, said to be mad is speaking things that are directly informative of the coming plot, but none of the characters realize it. So mm-hmm. they're just kind of like, oh, what's this nonsense? Uh, and then meanwhile, we're just seeing more stuff with Dean Stockwell and Sandra D. Um uh, they're hanging out. Dean Stockwell is just always in a suit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Very dapper. And I think it's implied, it, Sandra D appears to be from this point, increasingly 
it's kind of hard to describe, just like increasingly kind of hypnotized, like she's always kind of sleepy. Yeah, the, I'm, I'm kind of unclear on this, but the, the film seems to keep her in this weird place where she doesn't seem like she's like 100% been kidnapped. But she's also not 100% a collaborator either. She's not like, yeah, let's go up there and raise some old ones, uh, Wilbur. Um, mm. It really does feel like this film aligns with something we've talked about on the show before, this uh, late 60s, early 70s fear of hippie occult mind washing during this mm. period. So it's really as if Sandra Dee's character is not, she's not being held captive by the evil Wilbur. He's not tying her to train tracks so the old ones will run over her. Um, uh, and she's also not portrayed as like a complete doll person where she's like, I obey Wilbur and the old ones now. No, she's she's just under their spell in the non-magical sense. Like she's she's been caught up in all of this hippie danger. And that's why she needs uh, Professor Armitage to to Grandpa Armitage here to jump in <laughs> and save her. Yeah, I think that's about right. So, yeah, she's not being portrayed as being held in Dunwich against her will. But at the same time, she it is suggested that that something she's somehow enchanted like her her uh her her free will has been compromised in some mm-hmm. way yeah and so she and dean stockwell are out on these uh they're out on a seaside cliff at some point and they walk up to some old stone ruins they're like these pillars and a staircase and a stone altar and uh and wilbur says legend ha- says it's been here forever it's called the devil's hop yard which is the name i looked this up it is the name of a place in connecticut which is, huh. does not look like this at all I, there's no temple as far as i can tell uh but the landscape is very beautiful looking in the movie yeah again it's it's clearly uh coastal northern california but but it looks gorgeous and and yeah there are increasingly these shots and i think these are ultimately the closing shots of the film uh, of of this the seaside and the waves crashing on these rocky beaches and it's uh it's good it's it's really good and so wilbur starts talking about this ancient ritual ancient occult rituals here that would involve like virgin sacrifice and this would somehow open a gate that would allow the old ones to come through and uh, then he does the thing. He puts his hands to the sides of his head, flares them like the Cobra Hood, and uh, he's got the pinky rings next to his eyes, and he starts yelling, Yog so thoth mm-hmm. And so here we get more weird psychedelic visions. Sandra D imagines herself to be sacrificed on this stone altar. She's surrounded by evil priests with these black hoods over their heads, and, and there's Wilbur standing among them. So it, it seems like he, he may have some kind of connection to these uh, evil rituals from the deep past. Oh, 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 and in this whole sequence, this is where we finally get the uh, the Wilbur chest reveal, which mm-hmm. is where he takes his shirt off and he's covered in tattoos that look like hieroglyphics. Yeah, which is great. I think in the original short story, Wilbur, for starters, is not dashing. I think he comes off more as like a dangerous bum. And we find out that he ultimately find out that he's like, but he has part monster body or something. And in this, uh, we don't have that. Instead, we just have these really cool, um, you know, occult tattoos all over him. After this, there's a whole sequence where we follow Nancy's friend Elizabeth, who's trying to investigate. You know, she she's worried about the well-being of her friend, so she's going to the Waitley house to look around for her, to, to check on her and make sure she's okay. And while she's investigating the house, there are several times so far in the movie where we have seen this door upstairs in the house rattling as if there is something behind it that wants to get out. Mm. And uh, and unfortunately, it is uh, Elizabeth who opens this door and goes into the forbidden room while she's looking around the house. And so this is the first like attack, the like the first murder scene in the movie by this the by Wilbur's twin, this other being in the house. And this scene is weird. It's like it's done with this flashing color abstract animation suggesting kind of the flailing of octopus arms and lights from another world. It does mm. this heavy like red and blue color saturation that goes back and forth. Yeah, like they're really I feel like they were really going for like an LSD trip kind of a vibe here. Um, and then again, it comes back to the fact, too, that they they can't really show the monster. They seem to have some sort of physical apparatus that they're shooting, some sort of tentacly thing. But they're they're not showing as much of it at all. And the film works better for that. 
I think it's always a better decision to show less of the monster. I mean, mm-hmm. y- you you can find exceptions, like the thing shows a lot of the monster and it's wonderful, but uh, that that's pretty rare. Most of the time, you're going to do better if you give suggestive imagery rather than just getting a good long look at the suit. And you know, because often if you get a good long look at the suit or the makeup effect or whatever it is, it it starts to look less and less great. Yeah, the, the flaws become increasingly obvious. It's the Jaws principle. They they, yeah. they did not have a great robotic shark, but they ended up getting really good footage out of what they did have just by, you know, clever use of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even today when you have some tremendous CGI effects, and granted there are some pitfalls with CGI at times as well, but like even if the, the monster is perfectly well executed on the screen, uh, you know, I mean, you have to remember what are monsters historically? Monsters are things that, that lurk in the imagination and monsters are things that are not fully seen, but partially seen in the mist, in the dark, in the wild, etc., now, there's a scene shortly after this that I think this is more indication of that there's something going wrong with Sandra Dee's volition um, mm-hmm. that, because there there's a scene where Wilbur and Grandpa start arguing about whether Wilbur is going to be successful in using uh, Nancy to open the gate and allow the old ones in. And I think she's just like right there. She's like in the room with them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Grandpa... I guess Grandpa has been turned against this this ritual. He used to be for it. Now he's against it. And uh, and he swings his staff at Wilbur and misses and then falls down the stairs to his death. Yep. Uh, and and there, there was a great moment here, though, where there's there these creepy sound effects, these birds in the background. And Sandra D asks, those birds, what does it mean? And Wilbur explains, well, they were trying to capture his soul as it left his body. Yeah, it's so weird. It's such an interesting uh, addition. I love it. But then uh, I love at the funeral for Grandpa Waitley here, there was it, it must not be this, but for some reason, when I so townsfolk arrived to bust up the ceremony, and it looked to me like it was implying that about 30 people got out of one pickup truck. Yeah, there's just suddenly a mob of, of town folk here to, um, uh, to object to them uh, carrying out a burial. Yeah, so they're, they're like, this is a Christian cemetery. Uh, we dispose of our trash at the town dump. But then I think eventually the police come in and they're like, okay, okay, break it up. Yeah. I mean, we can't possibly be supposed to, to, to feel anything but disdain for these town folk, right? I mean, they, this is bad. It, like, even if, uh, you know, Wilbur is the villain of the piece, he's just trying to bury his dad in the cemetery. Well, and summon uh, elder gods that will destroy the world. Well, but. yeah, well, he's doing that too, but this is a side <laughs> thing, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. like, come on, come on, guys, leave, leave this man alone. So uh, Wilbur, you know, he, he still needs that Necronomicon. He's like, uh, you know, the professor wouldn't let me borrow the book for five minutes. So uh, so I guess I'm going to have to go to the university library and steal it. And then there's a whole sequence where he does that. He breaks in. He tries to get the book. He gets into a fist fight with a security guard. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the, they have a fist fight. And then the funny part is the guard wins. Uh, kind of surprisingly, like he knocks Wilbur yeah. unconscious, apparently. Then he goes to the phone, I think, to dial the police. But then Wilbur just picks up this big weapon. It's like a halberd that is on display in the library and stabs the guard in the guts with it. Yeah, it's, it's a nice ending to a, a fight scene that, yeah, has this unexpected twist, uh, but is also very like Old West style fighting, you know, like people getting punched and falling through tables and such. Um, so it's a, it's a fun sequence and it's, it's also, I think a nice, um, twist on what happens in the story in the original short story. If I remember correctly, Wilbur breaks into the museum to try and steal the book and guard dogs kill him. (laughs) Oh, so yeah. So, uh, which is clear. I mean, I guess, you know, you can argue whether that worked in the original story, but, uh, it would not have worked in this story. We need Wilbur to be there at the, the, the finale. We don't need him to be, uh, done in by a German shepherd. And it adds this additional twist. He's not only willing to break the laws of nature and and all to bring about this uh, resurgence of the old ones. He's also willing to kill for it. Right, right, yes. Um, but even then, it was in self-defense towards the end. <laughs> it's, it's still they managed to walk this line where it's not like he kills the cop in cold blood. Uh, he grabs the spear, and then the cop rushes him, and he, like, pulls it up in time to impale the, the, the security guard. Yeah, so there, there are several scenes in this movie where I think Wilbur is presented as having a, a kind of dangerous uh, Nietzschean beyond good and evil outlook, you know, that he— 
he believes that m- moral concerns are just sort of like uh, a petty folly. Uh, mm-hmm. Like there's a part where grandpa's trying to like convince him like, you can't do this, you know, you, you shouldn't do this. And then he says, I do what I want. Yeah. So I think Wilbur, maybe he rejects the idea of an ought or a should, you know, there, mm-hmm. there, there is nothing I should or ought to do. There is what I will. Yeah. So at this point, he's killed. He's crossed that line, but yeah. he also has the Necronomicon. Right. And so this sets up the third act of the movie, which is going to be some uh, twin monster rampage and, uh, and, uh, and a very slow-moving ritual. Mm-hmm. So the final showdown is Wilbur is setting up uh, to, to do this ritual, to open the gate, to allow the old gods in, or the old ones, and they're going to come and destroy the world. Uh, he, this is probably going to involve uh, human sacrifice of Sandra D on the, on the altar. And then meanwhile, his brother, oh, he, he says at the beginning of the ritual, he's, he's saying the name of these gods. He's saying like Yogg-Sothoth. And uh, he's got the Necronomicon, and he says, I summon you, brother of darkness. I summon you. And his brother is uh, his twin brother is apparently this thing upstairs in the house that keeps rattling on the door and it bursts forth from its confinement and it goes out to roam around the town and get into all kinds of mischief. <laughs> Good natured mischief. <laughs> Some unspeakable deadly mischief, the, the geometry of which is impossible to describe. <laughs> Now, I will say in some of these scenes where the monster is roaming around, again, we're not really seeing it. We're seeing more from its point of view and then getting a kind of audio texture, that heartbeat sound that that allows a, that helps us know that something very dangerous is going on. And then we're getting these suggestive flashes of imagery that are, I think are not to be understood as pictures of the monster itself, but in a way the monster itself kind of can't be seen or can't be comprehended with human eyes. So it's just mm-hmm. this presence that suggests other images. Yeah. And, uh, and at times they do this with like, with, it's like the weather, it's like rain or wind moving in. It's, 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 I, I thought really effectively done. Oh yeah. There's a really nice shot of like visions of wind blowing dust over a winding road or yeah. wind blowing over the surface of a pond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it's going to attack a bunch of the townsfolk. So we get you know scenes of that. There's like a nearby house that has these people. They're they're about to have dinner. I think they're saying they're saying a blessing over some kind of wretched ham. It's some of the same uh, townsfolk who busted up the funeral earlier, and uh, they, they hear these weird sounds. Uh, the the house is kind of shaking. The man grabs his rifle and he goes out to investigate, and he shoots at something he sees in the barn. And then it attacks the house and everything is shaking and uh, we're to understand it doesn't go well. Uh, and then this is confirmed when Professor Armitage and doc- the doctor from the town from earlier, Dr. Corey, they show up at the house where the townsfolk have gathered. Uh, they, they see the remains of this family and they're like, oh, no, we got to form another angry mob because <laughs> they correctly assume that the Waitleys are responsible, or at least that Wilbur is, Wilbur and his uh, monstrous twin brother, and they want to go get revenge and uh, Armitage is like, Wilbur Waitley might be the only person who can stop the creature that did this. So he's trying to talk sense into them. You know, he's like, hold on, we need to figure out what's going on. Uh, but the shapeless being, it attacks Talia Shire while she's driving a car. Uh, it attacks a posse who's hunting for it in the woods. Uh, and so it, there, there are these repeated uh, scenes where people are sort of felled by psychedelic visual effects. And, mm-hmm. and again, I, I think it works pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, for a, a, a film that that can't or won't show, uh, you know, an actual monster, like this works really well. I, I think. I think ultimately, uh, I feel like Lovecraft aficionados were probably too hard on this film because, like, they're they're kind of pulling it off. They're they're pulling off this this unseeable, unknowable horror that uh, you know makes you crazy if it touches you, sort of thing. No, of course, this all comes down to a wizard battle. You got you got to have a wizard battle to settle this problem. Uh, Armitage shows up at the side of the Devil's Hopyard where they're they're going to do the human sacrifice, and uh, Wilbur's there. And so Armitage and Wilbur start essentially yelling spells at each other. I think they're they're just like calling out Lovecraftian phrases at one another. Yeah, and it's it's I love it. It's super weird, especially since there are no real added effects. Like it it's the kind of thing where if you saw actors doing this today, you would think, "Oh, well this is before they added the like the lightning and lights and lasers shooting off of them every time they say something." Uh but none of that was added, and they really didn't have to because both actors are doing such a good way of 
of saying I don't know of, of of saying the magic words I don't know like just their intensity as they're uh, they're belting out these lines it works really well and you totally buy into the fact that yeah they're 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 blasting out spells here yeah I think uh, I think you're quite right that it it especially has something to do with the audio mixing of this scene that makes it more unsettling than you would think a wizard battle should be mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, Armitage wins the wizard battle. He He's yelling out these phrases, I guess he must know from having studied the Necronomicon. And Dean Stockwell, uh, he gets sort of like, he gets, I don't know, something about these phrases get in his head and he clearly gets like foggy and confused and frustrated. And then he gets struck by lightning and catches on fire. <laughs> yeah, and falls off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. And at the very last, we do get a vision of this uh, unspeakable evil, the Wilbur's brother. And this is the one moment where when we get this, this flash of its actual form, I think it looks like a beholder, doesn't it? Or at least it looks like illustrations I've seen of beholders. Yeah. I mean, we don't, it's even, it's still in the big reveal. We don't see it all that clearly. So there is a sense of a beholder. There's a sense of a, a Gorgon's head, uh, but also it's just like color and madness. And so then after, after all the, uh, the violence is done, uh, things are coming back down, and, and the, the final thoughts are, well, Armitage says, well, looks like Wilbur's twin took after the father. So uh, like you were saying earlier, you know, he has his father's eyes. Um, but then also we see Sandra D is okay, but it is suggested she may in fact be carrying the child of an interdimensional demon god now. Yeah, that's right, because we, we have that pause and then the creepy music, the heartbeat stuff comes in, and we have like what an animation of a fetus that's visible there, um, which, which I, I quite like because it implies like the next level of this curse is the, 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 the generation of those born in the 1970s, which being a child of the 1970s, I like this because I'm watching the screen. I'm like, that's me. I'm the baby. This, this is my generation <laughs> that they're, they're referring to. So uh, in a way, like... Um, you know, people my age and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and younger, um, uh, like we are the sequel to the Dunwich are the generational curse of the old ones is that you will give less of a crap than any generation ever before. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, it's, it's, it's an ominous ending. I thought it's a good, good place to land it. Uh, there's there, again, there are also all these shots of just, uh, waves crashing on the, uh, on the coast. It's, uh, it, it ends in a, in a nice spot. All right, so there you have it, The Dunwich Horror, uh, which, which I, I quite enjoyed. I found this a very, very, very fun film to watch. Um, you might be wondering, well, where can I watch The Dunwich Horror? Well, you can buy or rent this movie most places you get your films these days. Um, uh, you can you know, stream it uh, you know, on all the major platforms. You can also pick it up on DVD. Sadly, uh, there doesn't seem to be an awesome vinyl re-release of the score, like I said earlier, but I really hope someone does that. Maybe something like nice purple vinyl or something. Or I mean, really, there are a number of wonderful colors used in the film, so you could swirl them all together in there. Oh, yeah, I could see that. You know, if they put out one of those big collector's editions of this that, that comes along with merch in addition, it should come mm-hmm. with a roll of wallpaper. <laughs> so you can put up the uh, the Waitley House wallpaper in your house. Yeah, you can you can Dunwich your your own home. Uh, mm-hmm. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very stylish movie. Very, very stylish. Very 1970. So I, uh, I, I highly recommend it uh, if this is your sort of film. All right. If you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, this comes out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science and culture podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, with artifact episodes on Wednesdays and listener mail on Mondays. But Friday, that's our time to cut loose and discuss a weird picture like this one. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 